Scott and Marsha Hawksworth. Uh, Pastor Scott and Marsha were Jade's youth pastors growing up, and uh, I know Jade's had many opportunities as they've come. They come about once or twice a year to speak and to be with us, and so I know Jade's got, has been, had the chance to sh- share some stories and some things that he loves about them, and I get the privilege and the honor today to speak about them. I have known them for a little over 15 years. I think you guys, I met you guys 16 or 17 years ago. I met you before we got married. And the immediate love and acceptance I felt from these two, uh, the immediate trust that was built in my heart with them was amazing because these two are the real deal. These two love people in a way that I've not seen many love people. These two have laid their lives down in ways that I've not seen people lay their lives down. Um, their hunger for the Lord and their love and their passion for their people in the church and just for people in general Um, and their love and their passion for us and for our kids. They've kind of adopted their kids. Our kids have many grandparents (laughs) and many aunts and uncles and and they've just adopted our children and have loved our kids um, so much. And um, they, Marsha has has so taught me how to be a pastor's wife. I didn't have um, always the the greatest um, visual or a model for that, um, but to see someone to be who she truly is and to be someone so secure in who she is as a daughter and to be able to run beside her husband. And Scott, to see you honor your wife the way that you do. I love it because you guys are such a team. You do this together, and, and that has meant so much to see that. Um, and you guys have spoken into my life, and you've spoken into my husband. I'm so thankful for the fruit that I see in his life, and I know so much of that comes from you. So today we want to honor you and welcome you and thank you for being here. We want to receive heart, um, family Let's have open ears, open eyes, open hearts to receive what the Lord is saying today. Amen. All right, let's welcome Pastor Scott Hawksworth. Thank you all so much. It is our, Marsha and my distinct privilege and honor to be here. And we bring greetings from uh, Faith Point and Colleen, where Pastor Jade threw down last week, and if you want to see that message, go on to faith, uh, faithpoint.ws, no, dot church, and uh, whoo, that was powerful. And uh, last time I had the privilege, uh, I think it was last year, when I came and preached, the Lord had given me a distinct word for you, and uh, it threatened to be shrouded beneath the veil of nausea and projectile vomiting. <clears throat> But this year, the Lord has stayed the hand of the enemy. Blessed be he. And so uh, I'm excited to share a word. I as well uh, ask the Lord for a specific word for Antioch. I always ask. I don't want to just come and preach something that I have preached before. I don't believe in that. However... This year, when three weeks ago, four weeks ago, when I was seeking the Lord for uh, a word for Antioch, the Lord gave me a very specific word. And unusual, he told me to preach it at Faith Point first. So I preached it two weeks ago. Then Pastor Jade came and preached, and it was just so in sync with what the Lord was saying. And, uh, and so today, I'll deliver that word uh, to you. So I'd like you, if you would, to uh, just... Lift up surrendered hands unto the Lord this morning, and let's ask, ask for his presence and his grace. Thank you, Father. We love you so much, and we thank you for your presence here. We thank you, Lord, for your invitation into the mysteries that you uh, shroud yourself in so we can have the privilege of seeking you. I ask, Lord, that you would give us hungry hearts, brave hearts, courageous hearts, And Father, I thank you that you've given a word for each individual, for each family, and for this body together. And we thank you, Lord. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. My dad, uh, Don Hawksworth, pastored a church in Mahia, Texas for about six years. And in his time there, he had a a church that used to be a a dentist office, and they had fashioned it. Now it had pews in it. And... uh, in theory, it would seat 155 people, but in practice, it would sit 154. Because on the front row, it was a church of pews, and on the front row, almost center, if you sat right here, there was a pole right there. 
just right in front. It was the most awkward place to sit in. If you had to get stuck there, this was, this was terrible. And uh, because it was awkward enough to figure out how to sit there, what do you do with your legs? Straddle that or to the left or right? And it was just not to mention all the, uh, the difficulty of the distraction. If there's a pole in front of you. But other than that, of course, the solution was just don't sit there. And no one did. But other than that situation, other than a pole in the pew, is there a psychology to where people sit or do not sit in church. Um, There is something interesting about where people choose to sit in the church that they attend. Some like to sit in the same place every week. Some people like to mix it up and get to know people, sit in different places. Some like to sit uh, near the exit so they can get out of there quick or sit near the uh, facility so they can get out very quickly there. Some like to sit close to the back because it's too loud up front. Some like to sit at the front because it's too quiet in the back. But no matter what you think, about the or understand about the psychology or sociology of pew sittage, I believe that it has more to do with vision than anything else. I really do believe that. And so uh, this morning what I'm going to talk to you about is my, the view from my seat. The view from my seat. What if I told you that God was not sitting anywhere near where you're sitting today? What if I told you that not only is he not in your seat or where you are, what if I told you he was four rows up and three seats over? Would you move? What if I told you that he just leaned back and said, hey, come on up here. Would you move? Some of you would probably go... Heck yeah, I'm going up where I got us. But but wait a minute, what if that's the seat that you received Christ in? Oh, you got a fondness and an attachment to that seat because not only did you accept Christ there and you had a tearful time where you wept your way through to a Calvary bought experience right there in that seat, but also you received the baptism in the Holy Ghost right there. What if goosebumps from on high landed on you right there? What if that was the place that you felt the presence of God and you know that God is there, he's been there. Not only did you get saved there, filled with the baptism and the Holy Spirit there, but what if also you got delivered from drinking, from drugs, from an adulterous heart right there? Man, this got some history. And I'm telling you that God God said he's not anywhere in there. He's three rows up, four rows up, three seats over. What if your experiences with God have been so intense right there that you've matured into such a powerful vessel of God, the gifts of the Spirit are so operative in your life that you dream in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And I'm telling you, God is not in that seat, but he's up here just a few rows up. Even though you've tried to sit other places, but God is crystal clear right there. You've sat in other places and it's foggy and you just can't get it. But you sit there and you get, oh, and I'm sitting here today telling you that God isn't anywhere in that seat. Would you change seats if he was up there three rows up, four rows over? Why would I be asking you to change seats? It's interesting. About five or six years ago, one morning before I preached, I had my entire congregation get up and sit opposite sides. I'm not going to tell you how that went but I did it it was interesting a really good illustration we really did that Um, but the reason that I would be talking to you this morning about changing your seat in church is beautifully and fully detailed in the Bible but before I take you into the depths of what the Lord has for us today I want to just glance over why and how Jesus Christ got people to change seats when he walked among the people of Palestine and again when the church was in its infancy. So we're going to start by looking at the seat of discipleship, okay? The view from the seat of discipleship. Now without going too deeply into this seat, which is uh, a very important, exciting, uh, very deep and wonderful category in itself, 
Instead, though, I want to just focus on three seats of discipleship, realizing metaphorically there are many seats on each row. But first, we become a follower of Christ Jesus. How many followers of Christ do we have here? Lift up that hand. Praise God. Amen. Thank you for the blood. And one of the first views of Jesus that we get is from the seat where we just watch Jesus be Jesus. First level of discipleship. This is the seat that we sit in, and it's where Jesus says to us, watch what I do. This is the seat where we watch Jesus be Jesus, and he says, watch what I do. Watch who I love. See who I touch. Observe who I correct. Look at how I handle adversity. This is the seat First seat of discipleship, I believe. The view to this seat is so different from any other seat that we have sat in before we came to Jesus Christ. When everything that we saw about Jesus from those seats caused us to be irritated about Jesus or inflamed. But this is the first seat of discipleship. We're just watching Jesus be Jesus. And the view from this finally gets us to where we sit a while and Jesus finally has some trust in us and then he invites us to come up from this seat to sit in a sit in a seat where we hear him say come do with me see that was come watch me from there now he we're in a seat where he says now come do with me he says hey let's love people together let's go touch some people let's go heal some lepers let's go feed some hungry do this with me That's a different seat altogether, and the view is completely different. Anybody understand that? There's a different view from that seat. Even those those were good experiences. I loved sitting on that seat, that first seat of discipleship, where I would just watch Jesus be Jesus. Man, there's nothing, nothing better than watching Jesus change somebody's life. There's nothing better than watching Jesus go down and reach into somebody's gut and pull out the vial and transform them and bring redemption. That's awesome. But he finally says, okay, that was good. I know you enjoyed that, but come up here. Come up here and let's go do stuff together. And after sitting in that seat for a while, then he moves us from that seat to the one where we hear him say, now go out and be me to them. Like in Luke chapter 10 Verse 1, where he sends 70 disciples out and he gave them power of him to go cast out demons and to do the stuff that Jesus did. Do you understand that those are three distinctly different seats? The views are entirely different from each one of them. Can you say the proverbial amen to that? That wasn't a proverbial amen. That's okay. It's just the seat you're sitting in, I guess. All right. Let's now... Look at another example of Jesus inviting his people to change their seats. This one is called the seat of persecution. The seat of persecution, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 and 20, it says this, And now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, where the word was preached to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, whom, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now here we see, uh, and we understand that the church was born in Jerusalem, and it had a great growth, a great growth spurt, great revival, great outpouring. It grew magnificently. It experienced great grace and great power. And they met primarily in homes, but the church preached to Jews. The view from every seat in the church was the back of a Jewish head. That's what the view, that was the view of the church. You sat there, you saw the same yarmulke or whatever in front of you every single Sunday, every single Sabbath, every time. The church grew massively in Jerusalem. But it was persecution that scattered them. And Jesus used persecution as the personal invitation to get a different view than their Jewish seat. It was their formal invitation to change seats. They changed seats from a view of Jerusalem to a view of the world. 
So we see, and I think you're in agreement with me as you sat there and said, wow, I think we're in agreement that changing seats is quite necessary in the kingdom of God, right? It's necessary for spreading the gospel. It's necessary for individual growth in the kingdom. And if I know anything about Antioch, it's that you are very kingdom-minded, very kingdom-centered, very kingdom-oriented. You have an understanding of the domain and dominion of God's throne, and it matters to you. So this word matters to you today. And this brings me to the place that the Father brought me when I asked him for a personal word for Antioch. And it's called the seat of greater vision. We've gone from discipleship seats and we've gone through persecution. How many of you would say you've gone through a bit of that as a church in Colorado Springs maybe? As an individual believer, anybody experience persecution? Well, if you've not, Experience persecution, maybe you're not ready for greater vision then. Somebody who hurt because of Christ, say amen. I'm telling you what, we lay our lives down daily as believers in this world. The seed of greater vision, and we're going to spend some time here this morning talking about the mountain of revelation or the mountain of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord or Mount Sinai was not only a very real and very powerful and very holy place in Israel's history, but it's a very powerful metaphor, illustration, and type for the follower of Jesus Christ. I love the image given to us of Mount Sinai where the Lord gave revelation. You have slaves to uh, Egypt who had been delivered, and for four centuries all they had was the view... the, the farthest backseat view of God. The only one who had a close-up view of God was Moses. That was his seat, and theirs was so far removed from Moses, all they knew, their front row was to slavery and hardship and persecution. And for four centuries, it was so ingrained into them, they had no concept of God And so God was going to show off a little for them and introduce them through this mountain that is the mountain of the Lord. What an image we have when we see the thunderings and the lightnings of God's presence and glory on the mountain of the Lord. When you go and read Exodus chapter 19 through 24 and 25, some of the most incredible experiences took place on that mountain in dynamic presentation of God's truth and holiness. Wow, he's introducing himself in some great ways. You know, when you read in chapter 19, you find out where God says, come on up here, Moses, let's chat for a while, but make sure nobody comes near him here because their view of me is so distant that my presence would kill them. They've got to come seat by seat or row by row. It's a gentle thing. And so you put boundaries there. You know, there's boundaries between us and God that he invites us over in our relationship with him. And that's what happens on the mountain of God. But if you weren't Moses and you're one of the children of Israel, which we really are spiritual Israel, and the metaphor that we have is of us being relieved from our Egyptian chains in sin and coming to Christ Jesus through the blood of the Paschal Lamb, Jesus Christ, same thing. And we look at the glory and magnificence and the power of God in these booming ways in Revelations. We hear them from great men of God like Pastor Jade or any of the wonderful mentors that he would like to have had in his life. And Israel stands and they watch these lightnings of God and they hear this horn blast, the shofar sound that's not blown from human lips. It's coming from the presence in the throne of God up on the mountain. And it's terrifying to somebody who's been outside of the theater. And now they finally come in and no, 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 you go hear God for us. And then you tell us what he says. It was just dynamic. And so it's a great metaphor for us. And in this, I believe God's going to explain some stuff to us and and impart his word to you today. So I'm going to just turn to uh, to Exodus chapter 24. We're going to spend the remainder of our time together. But just at the beginning of Exodus 24, the word says that God said to Moses, Come up here to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who were Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. 
Didn't we just do that? Didn't we just come and worship God? Now, some of you might go, yeah, but we didn't worship from afar. We were right there in his presence. Let me tell you, we're talking about the Holy One of Israel. We're talking about the King of the universe. We were afar. If you don't realize that no matter how close to God you get, there is still mysteries of his glory. You don't have God pegged. Let me tell you something. I want to ask you before I go further today, will you give God permission to be mysterious or does he have to fit in your ideal of who and what and where he is? Because that will determine what you get out of what God's saying today. And I promise you this, I'm just a little vessel. I'm not, I'm not anything great. You haven't heard my name on the radio. You haven't, haven't read my books. You haven't been influenced by that. But let me tell you, the God who raised me up and placed his word in my mouth is the one who created the universe and has a word for Antioch today. You can listen to it or you can throw it away. That's up to you. But do you give God permission to hide in the mystery of the smoke and the cloud that descends upon the mountain of the Lord. That's your choice. But I'm telling you what, we worship from afar even when we are feeling the goosebumps from Mount Zion itself. We're still from afar. And he says, you know what? Y'all come up here. Do y'all say y'all here? Okay, good. good. Y'all come up here. And then he says, Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. He invited some people that were not of the rest of the tribe's viewpoint. He invited those who had changed seats to come up with Moses who had a very specific seat. You know what, if it hadn't have been for Moses, nobody would have been invited onto the mountain of the Lord. I teach that and try to train that to the young ministers that I raise up and my staff and the young ministers that I have influence in their life. I tell them, listen, I'm going to do what God did. He called me onto this mountain of the Lord. It's called Faith Temple, Faith Point. The ministry that God gave me, this is what God gave me stewardship over. And I'm going to invite you into a different seat. And I'm going to raise you up on this mountain. And when you get on this mountain, you're going to see things and be privy to things and revelations of God that you wouldn't have privilege of seeing if you weren't on this mountain. So do not disrespect the honor of being invited onto this mountain. Now I want that to sink in because I want you to know if you're a guest today, if you have another church, if you're passing through or if this is your church and you're one of the homeboys of this church. You will see things that God privileges you to see because of the invitation of the man of God. Oh, God has brought him to a place and and this woman to a place for this city and for, I believe, this state and I believe for this nation. So let's not disrespect this. Let's, Let's realize, whoa, my seat might be something privileged and I might have had some great seats there, but it seems to me that God is inviting me to even get a better seat. And so that was the first two verses of 24. And when God says, now Moses, you and Aaron and Nahab and Abihu and the, and the elders, I want y'all to come up here and worship from afar. And then Moses, you're going to come up closer and we're going to have a chat and we're going to do some specific things. And then the next couple of verses, there's some preliminary things that Moses does. And then we catch up to when he actually inactivates, uh, activates this. Verse 9 let me read this to you, and then I'll preach a few minutes, and then we're going to go where God tells us to go. Verse 9, Then Moses went up also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very, it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Did somebody just feel the presence of God show up? Did you just feel that? Give me just a moment because I felt that. It was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of his children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and they drank. And then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments 
which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud. He went up into the midst of the cloud, the darkness, the mystery, that which concealed everything. He went up into the unknown. He went up into the cloud, up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 9, Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw things they had never seen from the bottom of the mountain. Moses had said, all right, there's boundaries there. Other people who don't have your viewpoint, who don't have your seat, they're going to, I'm inviting them to another seat. So guys, come on up to another area of the mountain of the Lord. I've been there. You're really going to like this. And so they follow him up there and they have a section. We don't see how long there we're there. But the word says that from this portion of the mountain, from their seat, they saw God. Now, it doesn't say the details of that. We know that they didn't see God in the way that Moses did. How many of y'all have come to church and you've seen God before? Now, I want to let that rest and see what your response is to that. Some of you are going, I'm not going to raise my hand because no one can see God or he will die. That's what the word says in the Old Testament. Some of you are going to say, I'm not going to say that because people think I'm more holy than I am and I need to be humble. I've got that reputation. I'm humble and all that. Whatever it is. How many of you know what I'm talking about, though? When you go there and you leave and you go, God, was there. I saw God today. Well, what does that mean to you? Some of you, it means, man, I saw God show up and touch somebody. That was God. I saw somebody got delivered of drugs. That was God. I, got, I saw God touch somebody's life and, and deliver them. That was God. Some of you, some people, though, they think that if it was a serene service, if it was a quiet holiness over the place and we just didn't quite get there in worship that they didn't see God. No, you just didn't recognize God. <laughs> right? Did you realize that when people, I've had people say this in my church before, man, we're just not having a move of the Holy Ghost, yet 17 people last Sunday got saved, 32 people last month got saved. Is salvation not the move of the Holy Spirit? That what that, oh, I get it. What they were saying is, you know what? I didn't see anybody do this. That's, that's, that's what God is from my seat. That's a holy church. Look at them. They can shake. They can move. I'm telling you what. That all determines on what seat you're sitting in. Your view of God. And that's why God is messing with us a little bit right now. They saw things of God that they'd never seen from this portion of the mountain. And I want us to understand that this probably had an effect on them. Do you think they ever thought during this time that they're in this seat? Do you think those 70 and Aaron and his sons, do you think they ever thought, man, I never want to go down. Man, this is awesome. I could live here. Look at this. I'm sure that they learned some man. His presence is here. I'm feeling him. Now, I'm not really close to him because he's up in that cloud, but I see him. I see some stuff. I'm feeling it, man. You know, you hang around in that portion of your revelation, and you get to know it pretty good until you know what? You come to a couple of the Shire 70 elders. You go, hey, man, let me teach you something. Come on over here. God is right here. See this rock? God is here. He's in this rock. God is awesome. Look at this rock. You know, you're teaching this rock to people because this is your revelation. Come on over here. And then about 17 of these younger elders, they go, oh, God's over in the rock. And they run over here and they learn about this rock. And somebody else is, this is a great area of this mountain. We know this mountain really good. We understand it. We can teach every square inch of this mountain. This is our revelation. This is our seat. They see God. And in their mind, who's down there? At the bottom of the mountain. Well, we're going to call them bottom dwellers. That's who's down there. We're going to call them bottom dwellers, our cowards. Those who are afraid 
to get close. No, Moses, you go hear God for us. These are the ones who are down there, maybe a little lesser. Those who are afraid of what they would lose if they got close to God, because you know the cost is great when you go up the mountain. Anyway, we could preach on that a little. Let's go a little further, though. There is a cost when you go change seats. You know, in a theater, they've got those seats that are like $28. I don't know if you've got them here. We call those the most expensive napping seats that there are. They're comfortable, but they're more expensive for a reason. They're more, I mean, they're more expensive for a reason. They cost more, but you get a better revelation out of them as well. Same thing, it costs something of us if you're willing to pay the cost to get up this mountain. And look what it says a little further. It says, and they saw the throne of God. It was the bottom of it. It was actually, the, they, they saw a pavement of sapphire under his feet. They saw under God's feet, there was a paved work of sapphire stone. It's going to be hard for us to wrap our minds around that for a minute, but they're getting a glimpse. In whatever way it happened, this is what the Lord was allowing them to see. They'd been around this area for a while. Now they look up and they see something. Now I want to focus on this for a minute. First of all, what they saw was not an organic, natural thing. It was a paved work. Now this is significant. You may have passed over this many times. It's not a They're looking and they're not just seeing a sapphire foundation. It says a paved work. There's masonry involved with this. Something from God. God, We're looking at the works of God here. That's what this symbolizes. Suddenly these people who never knew God are getting a revelation. Oh, God does stuff. He does purposeful stuff. It's not just floaty around on, whoa, just aura stuff and, and... spacey things and weird stuff. God does stuff, not just give us goosebumps and great things. He does stuff he's made. And these works are under his feet. This is the kingdom of God. This is anything under God's feet is his dominion. So they're looking at the the purposeful, intentional works of God. This is starting to get good. They're not just accidentally. God is inviting them not just to be in his presence. Oh, some of us love to get in his presence, but we don't want to have anything to do with the works that he has for us to do. That's kingdom stuff, not just hanging around basking in his presence. That's having the kingdom without the king. You don't want just the gifts of God. You want the God of the gifts. That's what we're talking about here. And he says, come on up here and look up here and see what's under my feet. Get to Understand kingdom mentality today. These are paved works, the works of God. Now, I just know enough about the works of God that they do something to us if we'll take time to meditate on the works of God. Psalm 77, 12 says, I will also meditate on all your works and talk of your deeds. When we meditate on the works of God, it comes out of us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, meditate on the stuff that God has done and you finally have a revelation. Now you're talking about something different. Your seat dictates what you talk about. Your view talks about, it dictates what you talk about. You ever notice some churches, all they can talk about is prosperity, and some of them, all they can talk about is legalism, and some of them, all they can talk about is worship, and some of them, all they can talk about is, is this, or some of them, all they can talk about is that. All of those are elements of the kingdom of God. Where's the church that will talk about the kingdom and not just the one element of the kingdom? And so it all depends on the seat that you're sitting in there. All right, so they get a revelation of the works of God, and They're able to meditate on them. They were getting this revelation of things that they'd never comprehended before. And this is what it's like when we find a good church. We walk into Antioch, we walk into Faith Point, we walk into any good church for the first time and you keep coming because you feel his presence. How many of that is your testimony when you walk through these doors of this great church? You felt his presence and you wanted to come back and you kept coming. Let it be known to the pastor that nobody's raising their hand. Except her. I saw her hand go up. This isn't just funny stuff. I mean, I may say some humorous stuff, but honestly, anybody ever, did you walk it, come in through the doors of Antioch and you didn't want to go back to First Baptist, Second Nazarene, or any other churches that you'd been in in the past? But this was where you realized, my family needs to get God here. 
This is it. Well, come on, give glory to God then with a hand clap of praise. This is the place that he invited you to and you said yes. They're getting revelations right here. And it was like the, and the word says they saw this vision. It was like the very heavens in clarity. Oh, I'm telling you what, when you, you will pass up many churches to get to the one where things become crystal clear regarding your soul, your salvation, and God's purpose in your life, right? I'm telling you what, I believe the church has gone through a lot of mess, a lot of chaos, a lot of times where the church was in the fog about what the church's purpose was on the earth. But I think it's becoming crystal clear to many pastors, many bishops, many uh, apostles, many people in the leadership of the church realizing, oh, it's becoming crystal clear. We have boxed God in. And we've begun teaching that which is practical for our growth. And for our offerings. And we've begun teaching and settling down in this area of the mountain where we understand it crystal clear. And we don't venture off of those pathways to go into another seat because maybe the people won't understand it. Or maybe it'll be too controversial even though it's coming from the mouth and throne of God. And maybe they'll stop giving. And maybe they'll stop coming. Oh my Lord, then what about my retirement? Blessed be the man of God who says, though it cost me everything, I will preach the word of God from the throne of God, from the revelation of the word of God, and I will give it no matter what. That's, I told you it cost a lot the higher you go up onto the mountain, and no one knows that more than the people who lead people up the mountain. It was like the very heavens in its clarity. They were understanding things how things work in the kingdom for the first time. Never had this God stuff been clearer before. We like this seat that we're sitting in. He gave them revelation, but you notice it said, but he didn't lay his hand upon the elders. Two things. Number one, he didn't kill them. I think, I think, kind of think that's, but you can interpret it differently. I like that. <laughs> didn't kill them, but no, he didn't. It says they saw the revelation of God. They saw the works of God. This is important for the elders. It's important for the leadership that follows any pastor that they beheld, they saw, but understand God didn't lay his hand. He didn't give them his strength to, to release it. He didn't give them the strength to do it. He was reserving that for Moses. But it was necessary that they saw the same things so they could support the vision and work of the, of the man of God. Do you understand that it matters where you're sitting? Oh, oh! every pastor wishes that the people would sit near the front, the, mm, sit closer to where. But like I said, what matters is that you get the vision, that you see it from that seat. So don't let it be so much about where you're actually sitting in the church, but where you're positioned in your heart. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there. I love that be verb. Be. He, didn't, he said, come up on the mountain and be. Moses got to be Moses in the presence of God. Just come up here and be there. Just be in my presence. Come up here and be. He didn't say that to the others. And there's a reason for that. He said, come on up here. Get in the smoke. So Moses enters the smoke. And I don't know, did Moses, now by this time, Moses, I'm sure he has a trusting relationship with God, but I'm sitting there thinking with me, I would have thought, but wait, you want me to move, but this is where I know all about you. I'm, I can teach people about you here. I can stand in the pulpit and confidently come all the way to the edge of the borders that you've given me. I know everything about this stage, this platform. I know everything about what you've shown me. And if I teach and go somewhere else, I don't, man, that's scary stuff. I don't know that stuff yet. I'll look like a fool in front of them. I may say some things wrong. I may stump my toe. I don't, it's dark up there. It's scary. It's in the smoke. This is clear. You want me to leave this? You want me to go deeper? What if I disappoint them? What if I get up and, I, and I'm not the same that, I, that they were used to and they stop following me? What if they misinterpret me leaving this area and I go up there and they think, oh, he's flaked off. Oh, I know that these would be going through my mind, but then again, I'm not Moses. These are the real things that I think of. Wow, God, this is scary stuff. And let me, let me just get real with you. The last three months of my life have been this. The last three months of my life have been the scariest, darkest times I've ever experienced. The loneliest times of my life. But guess what? Even when I couldn't find God, 
And listen, it took me, I couldn't find him. He was showing me stuff. He was showing me stuff, but I didn't know it until I finally spent my time there. And that's gonna make sense to you in a second. Wait, God, this has been good. You're asking me to come up and smoke. I've learned about you here. I've learned how you speak for the last 30 years, last 20 years, God. You've talked to me this way. You've used this language to me. You've helped me to understand how to interpret scripture this way. Father, it's very fine cut. I understand it. I'm confident to lead people and you're asking me to go somewhere else. In the higher place, smoke conceals the glory of God. The higher you go, smoke, there's darkness that conceals the most important things. You ever realize why things are put in a safe and locked? You ever think about why things that you can't get to are put there in, in, a, in a boundary so it's hard to get there? So you have to pay the price, so you have to exert some effort. So anybody who gets it another way is a thief, a scoundrel. A low life, a bottom dweller. I could name other things, but those who pay the price, who go and search and get on their face and give up a lot of stuff, God has stuff behind the veil for them. God has stuff for you. And it's, I'm telling you what, it may have been good there looking up underneath the throne of God, but there is another aspect and element and dimension of his throne you've never even experienced or thought of. In the higher place, you're gonna have to look more for God than you ever have. You may not find God as quickly. And that's the nervous thing. God, you're inviting me up into the smoke. Now listen to this. Scholars, uh, historians, and everybody who's studied Mount Sinai and anything about it has said that up in that part of the mountain, Moses had 30 paces of room for 40 days in the darkness. Did you ever wonder why Moses was up there 40 days? Was it because, well, 40 days is necessary for God to carve into stone the Ten Commandments? He didn't have a word processor. He didn't have a, an Apple computer. He didn't have, he had his finger and stone. It would take 40 days. Wrong. God can do it like this. Why did it take 40 days for Moses to spend in the presence of God, 30 paces, 30 paces of room in the dark. Well, maybe because it was dark up there. It was in smoke, it was concealed, and he has to look for God. Wait, this is Moses. He had to look for God. God talked to him face to face. I don't think on the mountain. I told you a minute ago about being in the darkest time of my life. I went through betrayal. I went through pain. I went through abandonment. I went through the closest of brothers and friends and, and compadres hurting me. I've never cried so much. And God chose to allow that to happen while my wife was on an airplane to Quito, Ecuador for two weeks to comfort me. I would come home and there was, there was no wife to wipe my tears, to hear my heart. All I had was, was a crazy poodle dog and a senile schnauzer who could barely stand on his own. And I thought, okay, God, you see what I'm going through and I'm doing it in the name of God. I'm doing it because I was brave. I thought I was doing, I'm doing what you said. So God, I know that when I come home today, you're gonna meet me and I'm gonna get in my bed and I'm gonna lay there and you're gonna send angels to comfort me. I woke up in the morning and not one angel had come to see me unless they're disguised as demons and dreams of people that I love that are stabbing me in the eyes and hurting me. <laughs> Didn't happen. I thought, well, God, you've taught me how to find you this way. So I'm going to fast. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to lay out on my face before God. And I did. And guess who didn't show up? God. All the rules were different. Everything that I taught this man, everything that I taught my wife, my children, everybody, everything I taught everybody, wait on the Lord and he will renew your strength. Wrong. First time in my life I was mad at God. I've never been mad at God before. First time in my life, I almost gave up. But I didn't, but I came close. I didn't feel the prayers of anybody. I didn't get phone calls from anybody. Why? Well, because I was in the smoke. They couldn't see me. It took me a while to look around and find God. And that's what he wants sometimes, y'all. 
He wants you to look for it, but we are so conditioned that if I do it this way, we want our quick revelation so we can get on about our business. Oh, okay, okay, that's enough. I got it, I got it. Now I'm gonna go. Forget it. When you get to this seat, God's got a few things to talk to you about that need a little more attention. He needs you to get out of your rut. He needs you to get out of your rut, that thing, the box that you so blatantly proclaim you're not in when you're a believer. And this is where you find out, oh, I've been in a rut. This, God doesn't exist if he doesn't meet me on my terms. Oh, my gosh. And I repent of that, y'all, I repent. And I, I, I repent of that. I've, I have preached against that. I've revealed that. I've pulled that darkness away from people's eyes and helped them to see it. And I didn't realize that I was the very one. I didn't know it until I got up and went through this situation. Moses was up there in 33 paces worth of stone. He probably had, he didn't come down quickly because he probably bumped his foot. He probably hit his head. He probably fell he probably hurt himself. He bore the marks of his work for a long time, probably for life. Did you know he was up there without food or drink for 40 days? And you think, well, that was a holy work of God, so he came down just as strong. No, if you've ever fasted for 40 days, about the 21st day, your body starts to cannibalize itself, and it starts eating the muscle tissue. And when you come down, your legs are missing a lot of what they used to have, and you don't look the same. I told you, it cost a lot. To get in the presence of God. This man didn't just get up there and have, oh, I wish I could get in the presence of God. I'm not afraid. You better be afraid. That stuff will challenge the very core of your theology, the very core of who you are. And pastor, whoever you are that's brave enough to lead a church, you better get in the darkness with God. But do it if you've got people who've seen the work of God and can share your vision. i got to wrap this up, guys. Last time I stood with you and I shared with you uh, what God had given me about Antioch Church, it was last year, I don't know if any of you were here, but what I shared with you had to do with courage. Actually, just a few minutes ago, Pastor Jade shared the very scripture I shared with you. He said, I haven't given you a spirit of bondage again to fear, but of love. I spoke to you about courage. It had to do with courage. God has made you, Antioch, a fellowship of courageous sons and daughters. I don't know if you remember that. That's what the Lord and I, don't, I only know you through this man and the few times that I've got to be in your presence. I know you through this woman, their, their family, and I know you through these precious ones that I've got to spend time with, Dan, David, and, and, and uh, Jonathan, and those. But I know what God said about you. You are a fellowship of courageous sons and daughters. A fellowship. Say that with me. We're a fellowship of courageous sons and daughters. Say it again. We're a fellowship of courageous sons and daughters. Say it again. We're a fellowship of courageous sons and daughters. I'm not going to say it with you this, this time, and I want it to resonate from your voice into his heart. Okay, would you say what you are? That matters to the one who's going up into the darkness. I shared that with you, but how purposeful is courage if it doesn't take a step forward? And is it really courage if it only steps where everyone else can see? into the tried and true paths, across bridges that have tamed rivers, and through the domesticated safety of conquered wildlife. How courageous is that? That's just a stroll in the park. Courage is what steps into the mystery. Courage is what goes where there are no bridges, no light, no safety net except the hand of God. That's where God is called the church. That's where God is called Antioch. That's where God is called faith point. So I'm now going to close by speaking into your courageous hearts and souls. I'm going to speak just for a minute into your courageous hearts and souls. How many of you have gone through some stuff that's painful? Lift your hand for a second. Lift your hand up. Holy Father, look at these hands. Father, this was hard stuff. Some of this stuff felt like you weren't there. But you were, because your word says you will never leave us or forsake it. But it doesn't say that sometimes it won't feel like you've forgotten us or forsaken us. So, Lord, I lift up the heart of, uh, of every one of these hands that represents somebody who's gone through an assault on their uh, character, their personality, their finances, their marriage, their faith, whatever it is. 
The scary thing that caused them fear, Father, I remind them they are a fellowship of courageous sons and daughters. You haven't given them a spirit of bondage again to fear, but of sonship whereby they cry out, Daddy, God, Abba, Father. That's where I get my identity from my Father. Now, Father God, I speak to them now as well to the whole church. And I speak to her, the courage in them. I speak to this man's mouth right here. I thank you, Lord, that you've placed your word in it. And Father, he has been challenged. I know that because he's a man of God. I know his heart. But Father, you said you will speak my word and you have courage to do it. And Father, I lift up these people who see the passion and the vision of this man and the woman. I thank you, Father, that you've let them see the paved work of the throne of God. And I thank you, Lord God, that there's been engendered into this crew a strength and a passion to go where you're leading. And Father God, sure it's dark, sure it's scary, sure there's clouds here, but Father, also there's thunderings and lightnings of the Lord. Also there's healings. Also there's glory, there's power, there's healings, there's salvations, there's redemption. There's, oh, hallelujah, thank you for it, God. I thank you, Lord. I speak a release of your anointing. I speak a release of your power. I speak a release of the fire of God like this church has never known. Father, and I don't say it because I want to, I say it because it's what you say. And I give you the glory. Would you just, as we close, put your hand in the hand of the person next to you. Would you do this? I do this every chance I get. Because you've got the authority to impart into the person that you're sitting with. It wasn't your plan to sit by him. It was God's providential circumstances that allowed you to be there. I simply, if you, I just simply want you to begin speaking courage into them right now. Father God, we pray for the person to our left and right. I thank you, Father God, nobody being left out, Father, but the hand of somebody and everybody. I speak courage to them. For you're the one who knows what they face. You know the darknesses that they face. But Father God, I speak courage to them that you will no wise leave them abandoned. Father, it's not in your it's not in your nature. Father, I speak provision for them. I speak, Father, comfort in the dark night of the soul. I speak, Lord God, the, uh, I thank you, Lord God, they're going to have a breakthrough. They're going to come through. And Father, it's all going to boil down to you directing their path to the purpose that you've called this church to. I give you glory and praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Come on, give Jesus a hand clap of praise if you would.